but most of us have self-doubts most of us think we're not really as good as we you know we want to be and, and we don't think we can understand that that little voice inside you that's telling you that is it just a part of your ego that is trying to protect you from failure and, and disappointment and it's trying to protect you but that voice is actually causing you more trouble than it's bringing you so understand we all have that voice we all have that ego part of us that's going oh well, what if you get up on stage and you freeze and nobody's everyone's gonna laugh at you you know um when you hear that voice i want you to recognize it acknowledge it and say i hear you but that's i'm not going to be controlled by that helping ceos and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them be inspired by world leaders game-changing influencers and next level gurus this is the active ceo podcast where the ordinary don't belong and now your host CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO podcast, we go beyond the human limits with a professional adventure athlete, best-selling author, crazy superhuman being, motivational speaker and mindset coach. Over the past 25 plus years, she has taken on and conquered the world's toughest endurance events and expeditions including the Sahara and Gobi Deserts, the Himalayas and Niger. However, none of these extreme events even come close to her greatest life challenge where it took a relentless approach to saving her mum's life. Her education includes a Bachelor of Applied Management in Sports Management from Otago Polytechnic a National Certificate in Business Studies from Carrington Polytechnic, Auckland, and a Certificate in Counseling and Human Relations and Social Work from Western Institute of Technology. Imagine the university of life you gain when you cover over 70,000 kilometers of running across some of the poorest, most dangerous, and challenging stretches of earth, including a life-changing argument with a partner while legally in the Libyan desert. Losing your mind in Death Valley, one of the hottest places on earth. Running the length of New Zealand, that's 2,200 kilometers. And pushing your mind and body beyond belief every single day. The adrenaline is flowing as I'm pumped up for a next level conversation with an absolute force of nature and true warrior leader in every essence of humankind who loves to put the body armor on and take grit and re relentless approach to life to a whole nother level. Lisa Tamadi. Lisa, welcome to the show. Oh my God, Craig. That's, I've never had an introduction like that. Thank you so much. Way, way, way too kind. I'm very, very honored to be on your show. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to have a fellow curious Kiwi from Taranaki on the Active CEO podcast. You know, I smile at the number of commonalities in our lives and traits. And um, I even brought my wife's wedding or bought your bought my wife's wedding ring from your jewelry shop in New Plymouth, uh, you know, over a decade ago. So, oh, did you really? Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I didn't realize that fun fact. <laughs> Fabulous. So New Zealanders are well known for being adventurous and enjoying the great outdoors. You know, did your life start out as one big playground for you as a child? Oh, I had a beautiful childhood. I had a, you know, really Kiwi sort of uh, outdoorsy childhood, um, brought up on a little farmlet in, in a place called Bell Block, um, you know, where we had a couple of cows and, a, and sheep and chickens and an organic garden and, um, uh, you know, just, just a, a wonderful outdoorsy childhood that I think, you know, I'm very, very lucky to have had. So, yeah, it was a real um, nice time to grow up in the 70s. Um, gosh, that's a long, long time ago now. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it, it was a beautiful childhood. So the Tamati family name is well known in the sporting world and, you know, your brother played high-level rugby and your cousins, you know, Howie and Kevin played, you know, were, were legends of the rugby league world in New Zealand. What drew you to sport and what sports kept you busy during those formative years? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, you know, with a name like Tamati, you didn't have a choice whether you were going to be into sport or not. It was uh, preordained. Um, so I did grow up in a, with, with a dad who was very, um, shall we say, uh, very 
he wanted us to excel at sport. He wanted us to perform. He wanted me to represent New Zealand. That was his goal for me, you know, and I could choose the, the sport that I wanted to do. But there was a lot of pressure, actually, as a young kid to perform. And um, my dad was an um, awesome dad, but he was also very hard ass for the want of a better word, <laughs> um, which I don't regret really because I learned a lot from him. Um, but he didn't sort of tolerate, you know, weakness and certainly didn't mollycoddle us and um, certainly pushed pushed us to perform and achieve. And I always wanted to please my dad. So, you know, as little girls do. So I was a gymnast as a, as a kid and that taught me an awful lot of discipline and skills um, as, a, as a young person in, in as far as training and pushing hard and discipline and, you know, that persistence that takes to do sort of that level of sport. Um, and I was doing quite well until I reached puberty. And, you know, as young girls go through this horrible stage of puberty, which could be a horrific time in life, um, you know, grew up too tall, too athletic, too um, not, not tiny enough, not small enough to be really good at gymnastics and sort of lost the plot there for a while and, and um, disappointed my dad at the age of 15 when I, when I pulled out of gymnastics and I hadn't represented New Zealand. So... That was a very uh, hard, harsh time back then because it was also, you know, those formative years when your self-esteem is very much, you know, tied up with body image and how you, you know, all of those sort of things that a young girl goes through um, certainly were formative experiences for me. So high achievers aren't always the most talented. They generally have this tenacious drive to overcome adversity. They've generally got some talent, but they're not the, the absolute most talented people. And they figure out how to push on no matter what. You're absolutely no exception to this. And how did dealing with asthma, those changes at puberty, and then breaking your back a little bit later on in a flying <laughs> fox uh, set yeah. you up to becoming an ultra marathon runner? Yeah, so I mean, I um, I'm certainly have no talent. To this day, Craig, I do not have any talent as a runner. Like, <laughs> if you put me in your average uh, 10K local fun run, right? Um, I would be in the middle of the pack because speed-wise, I just don't have the genes for the, for speed. Um, what I did have was a, a mindset that um, in stubbornness to be able to go for a long time and ability and a good endurance uh, level. So there, there are different types of fitness, right? And there are different types of skills. So I didn't have speed, but I definitely had the endurance gene. <laughs> um, and I also had a mindset that was, you know, head through the wall. I'm going to do this. I don't care if I'm not talented. I'm going to find a way sort of thing. Um, but I didn't, you know, I, I didn't excel at running. Um, I'm, I'm very low, uh, small um, lung capacity, a very low VO2 max. So I remember getting tested up at um, Auckland University, you know, they had the AUT up there, um, just before Death Valley, actually, the first time I went there, and um, they, they did a VO2 max test. And they said, well, if you were a young person, because I was already in my late 30s by this time, um, coming to us to see whether you'd be suited to the sport, um, we'd be telling you to go and pick another career, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, luckily nobody told me because I did get to number number 10 in the world. So, you know, like it, it, it's not about talents. It is about grit, determination and an ability to suffer a lot, actually, like the ability to when times are tough and you're hurting to be able to keep moving forward. And of course, ultra marathon running is all about that. Um, it's, it's much more of a mental game. It's certainly physical as well. Don't get me wrong, but there's a huge mental aspect to it. Yeah. So before we go deep into kind of that mindset of being an ultra endurance and adventure and, and, and being in the adventure world, what drew you to study social work, psychology and, and business studies? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I actually, when I left school, I, I, I started working for the state insurance and like, I, I just felt like a fish out of water. I was physically ill every day because I hated it so much and it was stressed me out so badly because I've just, I'm, I'm a person, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm, I'm like, a, I, I knew very early on that I was not cut out for the normal corporate world. Um, again, much to my father's disappointment. <laughs> um, and so I went, okay, I've got to study because I know how to study and I'm pretty good at that. So I'm going back to, to study, but I didn't want to leave my hometown at that stage. So in, and I also had a, um, you know, a big heart for people and social work and things like that. So I, I studied that for the, first, for the first thing I did. But at the end of that course, I sort of realized that I was way too young and had too many issues to help anybody else out. 
um, and that was something for later on in life perhaps, but not, not at that point. Um, but it did give me a, a basis in psychology and things like that that actually helped me personally as a personal development side of things. Um, and then I went into uh, business because just for a lack of imagination, really. <laughs> and I was okay at maths and I was pretty good at you know accounting. So I thought, well, that's what, you, that's what I'll do. But you couldn't really get anything more not appropriate for me in my personality. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I just bumbled my way through, really. Um, and then I um, met a, um, an Austrian boyfriend. Um, he, he ended up being my boyfriend. He was actually cycling through New Zealand and he climbed our local Mount Taranaki, our beautiful mountain, and he got hit by an avalanche. And my mum had met him the day before. So, you know, when they finally rescued him three days later off the mountain, he didn't know anybody and was badly injured. So mums being mums who've met poor young foreigners go and, come and live with us, you know, <laughs> while you recuperate. <laughs> and I was back home for my summer holidays. And um, yeah, that was, uh, fell in love with him and, and ended up uh, ditching my studies um, and following him off on adventures around the world. So that's how I sort of ended up tipping into this world of, of uh, you know, we, we cycled everywhere, kayaked, canoed, climbed mountains, trekked, you know, did all that sort of stuff for, for about five years. Um, we, we spent doing that around the world. So that was a, a, a good start into the adventure world. Yeah, definitely. You, uh, you know, canoeing 800 kilometers down the Yukon is, is something, uh, quite an experience, I'm sure. Yeah, which, which I, um, yeah, nearly died doing. That's <laughs> actually, um, but yeah, that's another story. <laughs> we want to go there. <laughs> so maybe we can touch that on another day. Um, during the 1990s, you started to find your feet. Uh, so to speak, in ultra endurance expeditions and then Thrive as one of the leading ultra endurance runners in the world. Most people avoid volatile regions of the world and generally don't wander into off-limit areas. You know, what was the catalyst behind the 1997 crossing of the Libyan desert on a 250-kilometer four-person expedition with 35 kg packs and no help from the outside world? Yeah. So this was actually before Craig, before I actually even could got into running, like I jog for, um, you know, for fitness sake, but that was about it. So this was when I was with that young man that I mentioned earlier, um, he had organized this um, expedition and we crossed the Arabian desert the week before as a warm up sort of thing. And then we went to the Libyan desert. Now it was 250 kilometers. It was an illegal crossing we weren't allowed to be there it was a military barred area so we had to sort of disappear into the desert in the dark of night um but like a Clive Cussler novel really <laughs> with, with these huge great backpacks now at that time I weighed about 59 60 kilos and I had a 35 kilo backpack on so that was for me at the limits of my you know ability I couldn't even get off the ground without their help and we were covering about 45 kilometers a day in, you know, extreme temperatures. And we could only carry two liters of water per person uh, per day because we had enough for a 10 day supply. And we didn't have proper maps of the area because back then there were no maps of this area. It was really an unexplored part of the world that only the Bedouins and the people um, had ever been through. So no outside Westerners have really crossed this area. And it's one of the most beautiful places um, uh, beautiful deserts on earth um, and our leader of the expedition was a guy by the name of Elvis and Elvis was a Yugoslavian survival expert and he'd been to this place 20 years before and seen a part of it and decided he wanted to do this crossing so this was his baby and we were um, you know going with him um, and so this was a, the, the two liters a day thing was just on the limit of what was possible because we had like 40 degree type temperatures um, you know, don't try this at home, kids. It's not a good idea. <laughs> now, so the dehydration was atrocious, and the the relationship um, was in a very bad state. That I, you know, the, the relationship that I'd been in it had become very um, negative and abusive. That's the only word I can use for it. Um, and it was starting to fall apart. And in the middle of this desert. Um, he decided to, to leave basically after a big fight. Uh, um, he wanted me to help with the, the photography and I was just physically not able to help with the photography. And Elvis, the, the leader of the expedition, sort of said to, hey, leave her alone type thing, you know, like she's, she's on the limits of what she can do. And just because you're 
bigger and tougher and stronger doesn't mean that we can all do that and you know and it was the first time that someone else had actually stood up for me and 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 I was just and he was like this is not this is okay not okay how you're treating her basically and for me it had become the norm that I was you know always in trouble and always not good enough and always put down um so yeah he left and and on day four in the middle of the heat and you don't know whether he was going to survive because to be out there alone is really, really dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't know whether we were going to get through. And of course I was an emotional wreck. And, but I, I learned in that moment that I had to compartmentalize. And this is a really important skill that you, and something like, you know, you need to practice too. It's not like it comes automatically to me, but being able to compartmentalize the situation that you're in, the task that you have to do right now, which is get through this desert alive versus falling apart and being an emotional wreck um, because your relationship's breaking up. You can't afford to do that. Um, so I, I pulled myself together because I, you know, the other guys were relying on me and, and we um, stumbled our way across the Libyan desert in various states of um, disrepair and dehydration. And it was on the limits of what was possible, the dehydration um, yeah, ended up uh, on, 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 the, on the brink of no return really with the dehydration um kind of long story short yeah we got there we, we survived but um quite major uh, kidney damage yeah, yeah. um and it had gotten to the point on day five where we'd had been hit by a sandstorm in the middle of the night and i was drinking most of my water at night time so that the cells could actually take it up rather than sweating it straight back out <clears throat> and so I didn't get my water supply that night because like when the, when the sandstorm hits in the Sahara, it is insane. You've just got to batten down the hatches. So we got into our sleeping bags and we were hiding and I couldn't access my water. And so when we got up at again about 3 a.m. in the morning to carry on, I only had a small sip before we were rushing and we were off and we had to get to this certain place, um, the Barbiti Depression, so that we knew where we were. And, and this, on this day, I ended up just... I was just passing out and the guys would put me back on my feet. I keep walking. I was like a complete zombie, no idea, unable to make any sort of decisions, just keep moving forward and kept passing out. And my, 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 my nervous system was just starting to break down obviously and hallucinations and, and, and completely out of it. Um, we ended up getting to the place that we needed to get to and Elvis had just been pushing so hard through that section. He wasn't prepared to stop and let me get some water out and, you know, take some time. He just wanted to get to this place that we knew where we were. We finally got there and um, I was able then to get the water out and, and to drink and took in a whole lot of water on that, that that's over the next few hours and sort of came back from the, from the edge, if you like. Um, but that was a, a very uh, formative experience, shall we say, a traumatizing one, a formative one. And the relationship broke up after that and, um, I was left with a very low self-esteem, no confidence whatsoever, physically um, not well. And it took me a couple of years really to, to get back up on my feet again. Um, and that's sort of how I got into the next phase, which was, okay, I now was not with the boyfriend who was into all the adventures. So I was on my own and I had this burning desire to prove that I wasn't as useless as he kept telling me I was that I was hopeless, that I had bad genes and that I was, you know, I'd, I'd heard this for years, how useless I was. And so I was reading one day a magazine about the, in a magazine about the Marathon de Sables, which is a famous ultra marathon in Morocco. Back then this was, you know, pretty new and exotic, still exotic, but it's, it's, it was pretty new back then. Um, and I was reading, oh, 240K, seven days, nine liters of water a day, you know, doctors, helicopters, airplanes, 700 runners. And it was touted at the time as the toughest race on earth. And I thought, hang on a minute, that was a hell of a lot easier than the Libyan desert. I reckon I could do this. And so um, that little voice popped up in my head and said, go on, sign up, you know. (laughs) And so I did. And um, I managed to get sponsors and get to this race and did this event. And I was just from then on absolutely in love with ultra marathon running and I was surrounded with amazing, positive people and they were, you know, the support that you got and the pats on the back that you got, which was so needed at that time for me because I was just so lacking in confidence. Um, and that's how I sort of tipped into the sport and then just went hard out. I want more of this, I want more of this and back to back sort of ultra marathons from then on in. 
So what do you think allows you to keep pushing past those points where most people would crawl up in the fetal position, wave the white flag and, and just give up? Well, sometimes when you're like something like the Libyan desert, it is down to, to life and death. If you do crawl you know, into a fetal position and don't move, you, no one is coming to get you. There is no other way but to get your ass up off the ground and keep moving. So you have to pull yourself together. And again, that comes back to that comp com uh, <laughs> what was I trying to say? compartmentalization, which is really, really key. So, um, and when you're in a, in a race, that same sort of thing is going on. You've got this like battle. I always call it the lion and the snake, you know, and they're like battling in, the, in your head, these voices, not literally, but you know, like, can you carry on? Like you, the lion's encouraging you and saying, you've got this, you're strong, you can keep going. I know it's hurting, but you've got this type thing. And then the snake is just constantly, why don't you just sit down for five minutes? Why do? Why are you doing this? What is the point of this? What is the reason you're doing this? Why don't you just take a seat for five minutes and relax? And there's no point and you're not going to make it. You know, all of this battles going on in your brain all the time. Um, and you have to, you know, some, sometimes in, in a race, you, you, you're fighting for single steps, you know, you can be down to a crawl, no longer a run, but it's just, can you keep going? Can you keep going? And one of the places that I often go to and when I'm in a state like that is um, I used to think about like, if, if my loved ones, one of my loved ones was, you know, we crashed in the jungle in an airplane and I had to run 200 Ks to save their life. Would you stop? Would you quit right now? If their life depended on it? <clears throat> and invariably the answer is no, I wouldn't because my loved one's life depended on it, right? So I would find a way to keep moving. Therefore, something is still in you that you still can keep going, okay? So you've just got to be able to tap into that resource for something that isn't as strong an emotional driver as that, you know? Um, does that make sense? So you're, 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 you're trying to get yourself into a state where you're pulling out the last reserves in order to save somebody in your, in your mind, and when you do that, you, you're, you're mobilizing all, all of your energy to keep moving forward and push through boundaries. And that, you know, there's just one of the sort of the, the, the mental tricks that you can use to help get yourself to the next, I don't know, 100 feet, you know. <laughs> um, and, and you find in a race, you're going like this. You, you're, the longer the race is going, the more extreme the highs and the lows get and much faster. So you can be on absolute empty and you're crying on the ground for a minute and you're just absolutely vomiting and sick and got no energy, someone's pulled the plug. And then 20 minutes later, you can stand back up again and keep moving, you know? And then suddenly two hours later, you're back in the game. And it's, 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 a, it's an amazing phenomenon to watch your body and your mind go through this in retrospect, what you've gone through. And you learn so, so much about yourself and what you're capable of and, and people usually stop at that first sign of trouble and they usually quit then or maybe they'll push a little bit harder and then they'll quit um but if you do ride these things out sometimes you go to some amazing places and, and experience amazing things talking about amazing places the the bad water ultra marathon is regarded as possibly the holy grail of ultra marathon running in the world and you cover 217 kilometers in the Death Valley where temperatures reach above 55 degrees Celsius. That's right, 55 degrees Celsius. Yep. Can you take us into a moment there in Badwater and what is it like to be pushing those absolute human, physical, psychological, and emotional and spiritual limits that you talked about just before? You know, what is one moment? Can you take us in there so people can kind of get a real feel of what it's like? Yeah, like this was a race that I'd wanted to do for so long because it is such a, you know, the coolest race on, on the planet. And um, the heat is a huge thing. And then you've also got the 217Ks, of course, but you've also got two massive mountain passes and then you finish up on a mountain as well. So you've got that on top. And for, I just, I got into this race when I'd just gone through a divorce and I'd just returned to New Zealand and I was in a bad place <laughs> and, and I finally got a slot in this race and I've been trying to get into that race for a long time, right? And you have to have a CV that as long as your arm. So I wasn't in even a good place to actually start and actually be in this race. And um, I, I had wonderful support from people in New Plymouth where, where, where I come from. And 
they all rallied behind me and helped me get the money together to go over. So that, that was the first thing. And then the, the cool thing with, with Death Valley, it was, it was, a, it was another life-changing event for me. Um, I had an amazing crew and things went really good on that first time. So I've done it twice. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll take you through just a, a section of it in the second time that I did it. So picture we've been through the first 70 kilometers. I went out too fast. Um, I'd gone, the heat was, you know, it got up to 57 degrees that day. I was um, struggling with heat stroke. Uh, it's now the night's coming in. So you've been going since uh, 10 a.m. in the morning and it now is nighttime and you're heading up this, this first great 35K or so pass up this massive pass and I'm vomiting, blood pressure's dropping, my blood sugars are in the toilet, you know, I'm just in and out of like, and just no longer running, just down to an absolute crawl again. And I'm going up this hill and I'm being held on the hand by my, um, my friend who's a paramedic and she's in my crew, Megan. And all of a sudden she grabs me by the hand and she throws me on the ground. And I'm like, you know, she's a really strong lady, does jujitsu and stuff. And I'm like looking up at her and going, what the hell? You know, like, what did you do that for? And she's just like, there's a rattlesnake coiled up on the ground. And so I'm like looking at this rattlesnake and go, oh, whatever, you know. <laughs> Got back up on my feet, walked around the rattlesnake and then carried on. Like, there's just no emotional reaction. Like usually if you saw a rattlesnake, you'd be all like excited or something, you know. At this stage, you just don't give a shit about anything. You just <laughs> die straight. And so then you're going up this pass. And then as the night wore on, I started to, the temperature came down into the 40s and I started to come right again. And this is again one of those examples of, you know, you're in the absolute valley of death, so to speak. And then you've come out the other side. And then the following day, you've gone over another pass in the night. You're coming down and then... I remember like looking down the barrel of this next section, which was 60 kilometers in a straight line. And you can see right to the end. And it's just in this mind blowingly straight line with the, you know, the heat waves as it's like going over the, over the road and the temperature coming off the road is over a hundred degrees because it's reflecting from the, you know, the tar seal and you're running on this white line and your shoes are cooked because it's like concrete, you know, like, cause it's just, so hot that it's cooking the rubber in your shoes <laughs> i had a film crew with me and the first year they um they fried an egg on the road to prove a point you know <laughs> you wouldn't want to eat it but it was it fried you know it was that hot and so you're very slow now you're very going very slowly because the heat makes you slow down otherwise you you'll so it doesn't look too athletic you don't look like usain bolt in a hundred meter dash <laughs> you look like these uh, you know, these um, pathetic creatures crawling along the desert. Um, and and then you've got like, you know, you, you're out there for another 12 hours on the straight. And it's like being in a, um, you know, where everything's passing you and nothing's changing. <laughs> it's just like being in a tunnel of death for 60 kilometers. And at one point, I, my one of my crew was behind me, Neil, my business partner, and he accidentally clipped my back of my ankle as he, you know, was running behind me and tripped me up and I'd been holding on to my emotions so hard because I was in such pain and so on. Uh, and, and tripping over just released the adrenaline and released all the emotions and I just bawled my eyes out. I was so gotten back on by my feet, but I was just bawling for the next hour, crying, 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 but still moving, <laughs> you know? And Neil was just like horrified that he'd done this and he was sent back to the car and then the, <laughs> some other guys came out and. They were apparently having conversations. Oh my God, she's still crying. Oh no, she's still crying. <laughs> you know, because you've just released. So, and the moral of that story is like, you know, shit can be happening. Things can be going down. You can be crying. You can be despairing, but keep moving. Do all that, but keep moving. Keep on the goal. Keep on the focus. And and, and that's an analogy that I've used a lot in, in other parts of my life now. Yeah, I was just going to say that, you know, where focus goes, energy flows. So, yeah, why is that what you believe dictates your destiny? I think, you know, we we cannot control all the variables in the world, okay? Like we, we're going through a situation at the moment with coronavirus. People are, are frightened, you know, where there's a lot of hysteria, there's a lot of fear associated with everything. 
okay, we cannot control that. We, what All I can control is my reactions to it and the decisions that I make from here on and on a day-to-day basis. How am I going to react today? Am I going to plan to do this event, that event, or what am I going to change, tact? So we have to learn to pivot and change our direction in which we're going, but keep moving forward and keep your eyes on your goal and being not letting the fear take over. Um, so I've probably gone a little bit off track of your question, but it's about, okay, this, these events are happening to us sometimes and we cannot control all the variables. I can control my reactions to those variables. And that's all you can ever do in life. So preparing yourself and believing, and this gets me onto a topic. Um, I've just released a book, Craig, called Relentless. Um, and this is a story about bringing my mum back. Um, my mum, who's been the rock of my life and the most amazing supporter and just an amazing woman. Four years ago, she had a brain aneurysm, uh, which is a bleed in the brain. And consequently, on top of that, a stroke. And they didn't think that she was going to survive. And there was a misdiagnosis at the emergency department. And we were left for six hours without medical help. They told us she had a migraine, ignored us. Meanwhile, she's dying, literally. And we didn't know. And I got caught out because I didn't know what I was faced with, right? And this was an example of, you know, completely out of control. I don't know what's happening to her. Or in that moment when um, after six hours... Uh, my friend Megan, who had been that paramedic, she, I got her to come up because the doctor was just ignoring us. And I said, there's something major wrong here and I don't know what it is because I'm not a medical professional. And she said, oh, she's having a neurological event. She went to the doctor and told him in no uncertain terms, get this woman a CT scan right now. So after six hours, we finally had that CT scan, came back blood right throughout the brain and dire straits. And then they had to shift it to Wellington Hospital because Taranaki has no neurological support at all. And we had to wait for the air ambulance. So another 12 hours of waiting. My mum could die at any moment. And you're just waiting for the ambulance to come. And in this this horrific time in my life, for the next three three weeks, she was in and out of a coma in a very, very critical condition. She survived two operations. They didn't think she would. She was 74 years old. And I went into deep research mode. So what can I control in this moment? I can control... The, the schedule for my family, that she's never left alone, that she's 24-7 around the clock, that we're being hyper-vigilant because we've been through this disaster. I was not going to leave it up to everybody else anymore. I was going to do what I could. In that time, I studied everything I possibly can about what she was going through, and I caught things that the doctors didn't catch. And um, my mum, by some miracle, and by the, you know, just she's a, she's a very... stubborn woman she didn't she didn't die but when she came back to us and she stabilized after the three weeks she was left in massive brain damage hardly any higher function Um, no ability to control anything in her body not even able to sit or to hold her head up or to chew food or or anything Um, and after the rehabilitation time in hospital the next couple of months I was just studying hard out Greg I just went I'm not getting any answers here. Somebody in the world has an answer for me and I'm going to find that person or that therapy or that thing. And I came across a couple of things. Now, I was recognizing in her some um, the, some of the things that I'd experienced when I'd done races at altitude. When you don't have enough uh, oxygen and you at altitude, you have only, like, uh, I did a race in the Himalayas, which was 222 Ks at, you know, up at 5,700 meters over two passes was the highest point and you've got about one third of the oxygen up there and I'd ended up with a hypoxic brain concussion from the actual preparation using a hypoxico tent in the build-up to this and I had all these infections go on in my body because I wasn't getting enough oxygen and the bacteria starts to go wild and so I'd seen this process in my own body and gotten through that And I was seeing the same process in here. So I'm going, she's not getting enough oxygen, oxygen, oxygen. And then I went, oh, she's got sleep apnea. I reckon she's got sleep apnea. And I went to the doctors and they said, no, we don't need to test for sleep apnea. Not necessary. Now, if someone has a neurological event, a part of the brain that controls your sleep and your breathing can be knocked out. It should be standard for everybody who's ever had any neurological event to have a sleep apnea test, in my opinion. So I went and got an outside consultant, brought them in, 
did a sleep apnea assessment, came back severe sleep apnea. So she was down at around 70% SpO2 at nighttime was the lowest point. And that's not compatible with life for very long. Mm -hmm. So she was going to die if she stayed like that. And she was sleeping 20 hours a day at the stage because she was barely conscious. So that was my first win. And then I started to think, what else can uh, oxygen do? And I came across something called hyperbaric oxygen therapy, which is an amazing treatment. Now, this is what they use in the dive industry for dive accidents um, when they get the bends. Um, so decompression chambers, right? Um, and when you put someone on oxygen and then you take them down to the equivalent being underwater or pressurized, the body can take up um, up to 12 times the amount of oxygen into the plasma of the blood because it compresses the oxygen molecules without getting too scientific. It um, gets a, a ton more oxygen into the brain cells so that they can start to repair. Now, there's areas that are dead and you can't do anything about those, but there are areas that are typically alive but not firing, and this is what this can target. So for anybody who's listening to this, who's had a concussion, a TBI, a stroke, aneurysm, multiple sclerosis, um, even for cancers and things that can be beneficial, um, check this out. Go and find out about hyperbaric. So after three months in hospital, I managed to get her access to a hyperbaric chamber when I brought her home. I, I took her straight down there. We very fragile woman who wasn't, you know, aware of anything. Stuck her in this chamber. We did that five days a week for 33 sessions initially. And then my mum started to wake up. Like she started to have some more light behind her eyes and a, and a couple of words and little bits of memory. And, and, and all I can explain is that she started to come around a little bit she certainly didn't get up and walk off but she was progressing and so then I, I lost access to this chamber because it had to be taken off overseas and so then I mortgaged the house I bought a hyperbaric chamber I installed it in her house and I put and this is a massive job to do okay this is not something you do in five minutes right and then I had to put this extremely fragile person who's unable to move inside this really difficult to get into hyperbaric chamber and pressurize her. So I went through another 250 sessions with her, um, each of these about an hour and a half long over the next couple of years. And as that gave me a little bit more and a little bit more to work with. So then I stayed one step ahead of her and I studied functional neurology, which is the study with your eyes and um, with your brain and balance systems because she had no spatial awareness. I studied um, nootropics, which are brain enhancing drugs and, and supplements. I changed your diet completely to being more of a keto based diet with lots of vegetables um, because you need ketones when you have a brain injury and you can't use glucose. Um, so all these things I was just researching three to four hours a day. I was working with her all day um, and trying to run my companies at the same time. So you know, really pushing up against the limits of <laughs> endurance. So this was an ultra marathon over a four year period. The first three years I was with her seven days a week and she started to slowly come back to us as I stayed one step ahead of her, um, her therapy. I studied epigenetics. I ended up getting um, qualified in epigenetic testing. I'm now doing functional genomics. Uh, so it's, this has sent me down a complete new um, pathway professionally. So now I have a company that, that does epigenetic testing where we are currently um, training towards being functional genomics specialists. Um, all of these things has come about from this journey. And it took me 18 months, for example, to teach my mum to roll over in bed, just to be able to move the muscles to be able to roll and to be able to sit straight because she would just be dropped over. Um, it, it's taken thousands and thousands of hours of retraining her brain at the age of 74 um, and now you know she's 78 um, and this is a, a, a something called neuroplasticity the brain's ability to adapt and change is from the cradle to the grave and of course it's more prevalent in the young person but it's still there in an older person and we were told she would never ever do anything again she would never have any quality of life put her in a rest home make her comfortable in a hospital level care you won't cope with her at home. You know, naysayers, you know, just constantly telling me it was going to be an impossible uh, situation. I ignored them because all my life I've ignored people who tell me I can't do something. It just puts oil on the fire to prove them wrong. 
And I didn't need any extra oil on this white fire because I was determined to bring my mum back or die trying. And it's taken a hell of a toll on my body. Um, I ended up getting really, really sick and um, uh, was in and out of hospital for a, a good uh, year and a half with some major problems because I just pushed my body to the absolute limits to keep you know my businesses going and my mum. But now, long story short, we've just released a book Four years old, my mum is completely normal again. She is reading, writing, walking, talking. She has full um, her full power of attorney back over her life because that was taken off her. Um, she uh, has a full driver's license. The day I went to go to the doctor to get her um, medical for her driver's license, he he was in tears because he never he came to get her thinking she was in a wheelchair, right? And she got up and walked into his surgery and said, "I'm here to get my driver's license," and he just cried. He said, I've never seen a comeback like this. It's a miracle. And I said, it's not a miracle. It's, it's a whole lot of therapies that should be offered to other people and aren't being talked about. And it's a hell of a lot of work that's gone into this. And, and this is why now I'm so passionate to get the story out there. And if I hadn't been an ultra marathon athlete and, and you know done all the stupid stuff that I'd done, which can seem pointless really, running from A to B in some weird place for no apparent reason, but the stuff that you learn when you push your mind and your body to that level really can help you in this sort of a situation, which you know any of us could be faced with at any time. Um, and that that's why the book's called relentless because you have to be absolutely relentless regardless of the naysayers regardless of the lack of progress we would have months at a time when nothing would be changing and nothing would be progressing um and you've got to be able to work through those plateaus and not quit and that's what i see again and again and again people hit a plateau and they stop they think that's it when it's if they just pushed on and on and on they'd get the next jump up and and this is uh, now a passion of mine to share the story through the book, but also you know, the therapies, the protocols, and I'm not a doctor, but I send people to the right resources and the right people to talk to, you know, um, and they can do their own research. We live in a time with the internet that we have access to the greatest mind on the planet through things like your podcast. You know, we, we get to listen to scientists and doctors and, and people at the cutting edge of whatever it is that you're studying. And we've got to use this opportunity to take back control over our own lives and over our own health and not just give it up to any one person. And this is not an indictment on the medical, uh, the, the, the wonderful people that work in our system, but there are some systematic problems And giving up your power to any one person is never a good idea in any situation. You go to your doctor, you get their advice. You say, thank you very much. I'm going to go and research some more. And then you make your own educated decision. Now I understand not everybody has, um, the ability to use the internet and research perhaps to the to the level that I did, but just taking responsibility um, for yourself and, and your loved ones and not just taking things at face value, you know. Um, dig deeper, get second opinions, find another expert, especially if you've got a negative prognosis. Um, I do, one issue I have is that in, the, in their attempt not to give false hope, they take away all hope in many cases and when you have no hope you take weak action because you don't think it's going to be useful anyway you don't really believe and when you don't believe that you can do something you won't do it you have to go all in you have to have a belief that you can overcome this whether it's completely unfounded or not is beside the point almost mm -hmm. it's about going all in on this journey and, and going, right, I don't care. I'm, if someone tells me to stick a carrot up my nose and jump 10 times because it's going to fix it, I'm doing it, you know? And having that, I, I did do a, always a, a risk-reward assessment if, uh, if what I was going to be doing was too risky for her or, you know, I, so I was constantly playing that game and trying to work out. But that, I mean, everybody has to do those risk assessments in everything we do and you make the best choices with knowledge that you have. But going all in, Craig, is if there's one thing you take away from today is whatever you're taking on, whatever challenge you've decided you're going for and you've done your preparation and you've looked at the problems and the obstacles and the situation, if you're going for it, go all in on it. 
So yeah, sorry for that rant, but. <laughs> no, it's, it's a remarkable story of, you know, dedication, the relentless drive, um, hope and care for someone. And, and I think what's, you know, really important there is that it's not about reckless drive. It's around doing your research and thinking about what's happening. Now, both in this situation and also when you're ultra marathon runner, you know, you would have experienced fear, imposter syndrome and self-doubt like everyone does. So what strategies have you found really effective for both yourself and other people you've worked with in managing that voice inside your head that is trying to control you in ways that aren't always positive? Oh, a brilliant question. So we all have the imposter syndrome, unless you're Trump, he probably doesn't because for other reasons. <laughs> um, but most of us have self-doubts. Most of us think we're not really as good as we, you know, we want to be and, and we don't think we can understand that that little voice inside you that's telling you that is a, just a part of your ego that is trying to protect you from failure and, and disappointment and it's trying to protect you. But that voice is actually causing you more trouble than it's bringing you. So understand, we all have that voice. We all have that ego part of us that's going, oh, well, what if you get up on stage and you freeze and nobody's, everyone's going to laugh at you, you know? Um, when you hear that voice, I want you to recognize it, acknowledge it, and say, I hear you, but that's, I'm not going to be controlled by that. I'm not. So it's, 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 it's like having a conversation with yourself and not letting that inner voice get you because there is another voice in there that's saying I reckon I can do this and I believe I can and these two are in conflict we have different parts of our personality and this is not like schizophrenia but this is like different parts of us one part thinks you can one part thinks you can't listen to the person who, the part of you that says I can more than you listen to the other one acknowledge the other one listen to it but then go nah I'm doing it anyway feel the fear and do it anyway there's a, there's a wonderful doctor, Dr. Bruce Lipton, who's a molecular biologist who's written a book called The Biology of Belief that really was really put this in, in the right context for me. We all have, he says, um, the subconscious programming that mostly we downloaded in our childhood without any filter, okay? So we have, you know, experiences as, as young children and as, as infants even, um, and from our community, from our parents, from the experiences that we had, and we downloaded a software package, if you like, and with, that's installed, and that's our subconscious, and our beliefs are all coming from that. Now, I'll give you an example. Um, when my mum was uh, a kid, she got up on the school stage to do a speech, and she froze, right? And she, she, she couldn't get a word out, and it was terribly embarrassing for her as, I don't know, seven or eight-year-old. From that point on, she decided she was never going to be a public speaker again. So that belief colored everything, you know, what job she would do and, and she would never get up and speak in front of a public because of that seven-year-old's experience. Now, you as an adult, as an adult, Isabel, should be going, when that voice pops up because she's been invited to speak somewhere at a conference or whatever, that voice comes up and seven-year-old Isabel goes, you can't do that. Remember what happened last time. And the fear and the emotion of that comes up. Now, is that relevant to Isabel, the teacher, the professional person that is now, you know? Or is that something that is needs to be, I hear you, I hear you, seven-year-old Isabel. I hear what you went through. I understand that. But actually, it's okay. I'm now an adult and I'm changing the way I see this experience and I'm changing that program. Now, when my mum had the aneurysm, for example, Part of her pre-programming was wiped out. And so now my mum will get up and speak. I had her at, like, at a conference recently, you know, in front of 200 doctors and medical professionals and telling our story. She got up on stage and spoke to them. She would never have done that pre-aneurysm. But because that programming is now gone through the aneurysm, if you like, she didn't pick that baggage back up and take it with her. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And so when we, we can retrain our subconscious mind slowly and put in the programming we as adults want to put in there, and it takes work and it takes time and self-affirmations and 
self-hypnosis and meditation and being surrounded by positive things like good podcasts where you're listening to positive people, all the things, things will slowly start to change your subconscious programming to a more positive one that is enabling you then to lift your eyes up to a higher horizon. Does that make sense, Craig? Oh, it certainly does. Now, r- the book Relentless is, is perfect timing right now. We have um, a lot of fear in the world, a lot of unknowns. People are not sure what to do next. They're rushing in and taking all the toilet paper out of <laughs> out of supermarkets. So, so where can people buy the book um, Relentless? Yeah, so... Um if you're in New Zealand, it's available in all the bookshops. Um, if you're overseas, it is on Amazon and um, print on demand and places like that. Um, uh, but the best place to go is my website because there are different buttons on there where you can go according to you. You can either just do- directly order it from my website um, at lisatamati.com. So T-A-M-A-T-I, lisatamati.com. Hit the shop button and it's in there. Um, and I am hoping to tour right through New Zealand. <laughs> uh, things are looking a little bit precarious right now with the coronavirus, so we'll see how we go. Um, but yeah, I'd love people to grab this book and and share it and, and share the message behind it, if, if, because it's not a book about brain injury. It's certainly got all the therapies and protocols and doctors and resources, et cetera, for people facing that particular t- challenge. But it's more around the attitude and the mindset and, and the, the approach to taking on a massive challenge in life. And uh, there's lots of uh, adventure stories in there as well, interwoven in the story with my mum. So it's it's something in there for for most people, I think, you know, whether you've got a sick loved one, whether you've got um, a thing yourself, whether you're into pushing the limits of, of, um, you know, human endeavours or whatever, there's something in there for you in this book. We all know smart people have great answers. But the most successful people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Oh, gosh. Well, this book, uh, just going back to the book, um, this was the first time I put out a book in the self-publishing process. And that was a scary ride, I'll tell you. (laughs) (laughs) I now know everything what not to do. and I, I learned an awful lot of on this way. And but this is the way. Like every time you step outside your boundaries, of I've, I've published two other books, but they were traditional publishers, which is a lot easier. Um, but when you step outside your boundaries and you just start the process, the next step will appear, and then there'll be massive amounts of obstacles and problems. But you just take it one step at a time. Um, and it's been a really hard, long journey just to get this book written and out there into the world to understand the entire publishing industry. So that would be uh, something new. And I'm just full into um, epigenetics. And so we have a program in our company, um, in an epigenetic health coaching program. So epigenetics is epi meaning above your genes. So this is the stuff that influences your genes and how they're expressing. So we all have our DNA, which we also going to be uh, offering DNA testing shortly. But the epigenetic program is looking at, you have your DNA. So how do you optimize it? How do you know what type of exercise to do? What type of foods are going to be right for your genes and how they're expressing right now? Um, what times of the day to exercise and to eat and to sleep? What your, your, your chronobiology, that's called, um, how you developed even in the womb um, and all the, the dominant hormones that you have in your body and what they mean for your personality and which parts of the brain you use, like this epic amount of information. Now, this has come from 15 different areas of science and hundreds of scientists have worked on this one project over the last 20 years to be able to give us insights as coaches is, is fascinating because we used to train like we train over 700 athletes in our in our running hot coaching company and we train two people had the same program same diet same sex same age right you get complete different results and you're like and you as a triathlon coach and so I would know that it, it's not just the training plan it's the it's the fact that these people have different genes and need to be trained in different ways with the different foods with different types of exercise, with different times of the day. Uh, and all of these things are taken into uh, consideration in this program 
So that's given us a chance to personalize everything to the people, which is really, really exciting. Well, from a health perspective and from um, a corporate wellness perspective, you know, like how do teams work together when your brain works this way and my brain works that way? How does that help our team function? Um, right down to you have a Google list for the foods, you know, eat spinach, don't eat broccoli, you know, like right down to that sort of a granular level. Um, so I'm really excited about the changes that are coming in the, uh, the biotech space in the, um, the health science space at the moment. There's just some, some absolutely amazing research. And of course, the journey I've been on with my mum has tipped me into all of these areas of research. Um, and I, I've, I'm heavily into functional genomics at, at the moment, which is looking at your specific DNA. So which genes are doing what? Uh, in your body and combining that with epigenetics to give people absolutely personalized recommendations for their environment, their lifestyle, the nutrients, and even things um, which is outside of our scope of practice, but you can get it down to the level of which medications are going to work for you and which ones aren't, you know, or which ones are deleterious for you. So it's really exciting stuff. Um, so yeah, and, and I share a lot of that information via my um, podcast, which is Pushing the Limits, if anyone wants to of course, um, I hope everyone's subscribed already to Craig's podcast. And perhaps you, if you like this type of content, come and subscribe to mine as well. And I'm going to have Craig on my show shortly because um, we're sharing the love both both, <laughs> both ways. Um, so, yeah, for me, those are new things for me that really get me excited about the future and the future health of our populations. And, and even like in regards to the coronavirus, having knowing your genes, knowing how to how to improve and make the best out of your immune system so that you're strong enough to cope with this if it does hit you. Um, all of that sort of information is, is absolute gold. So I'm really excited for all that. Brilliant. What is the one question that you would love to solve? <sighs> I'm just, I wish I had a brain the size of Einstein's because I'm like, I'm, I'm constantly trying to pack in all this fantastic scientific information and the greatest therapies and the greatest everything's and i and i i want to have it all in my head so that i can help more people and i wish i had better resources so for me personally i'd love to fix all this and have have uh systems and resources in place to really make an impact and and many much more lives than i than i currently do you know for me personally that would be I'm, I'm working to solve that problem. <laughs> might Love be a way off yet. <laughs> Love it. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? It's a life that isn't ruled by just fear. It's a life that is, you know, I'm going to take these adventures. I'm going to see where this goes. I'm going to dive in head first. I'm going to experience the highs and lows. And, you know, like... I, I've been through some absolute crap in my life, you know, and, and so have many other people, but it's what you do with that crap, okay? It's, it's, it's how you use that horrible experience that you can't change, that's been, you know, happened to you. What do I do with that now? How do I make a positive future and what can I take from the learnings from that? And, and this coronavirus thing is a, is a perfect example of what attitude are you going to take to this? Are you going to be in fear and yes, we need to prepare and yes, we need to be careful to stop traveling and doing whatever we need to do. But where can you learn from this? How can you uh, turn this into something positive in your life? And you won't have the answers immediately, but having that approach is where next, how do I fix this? What do I do here? And being open to that and to going all in, as I said earlier, into whatever mission that you're taking on in life. If you can go all in on the, on the project, not half-hearted, half-hearted got nobody anywhere. <laughs> so about going all in, how can people go all in to learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Oh, I really appreciate it. Um, head over to my website probably is the best place because it's all on there, all my programs, some, the running coaching programs, some mental toughness programs, the podcast, uh, the books. Uh, I also have a jewelry line. Um, yeah, so it's all on that website. Um, you can connect with me on Instagram, Instagram at, at Lisa Tamati on Facebook. I'm all over Facebook and, and Instagram mostly is my, my go-tos and LinkedIn. And um, 
yeah, I just love people if they want to reach out to me, if they've got questions, of, if they've got a loved one who's facing a brain rehab situation, um, firstly, get, yeah, go and get the book. Um, I'm trying to develop a course in the back end of the book now, you know, off the back of the book because I'm getting inundated with people wanting help with these brain rehab um, protocols and therapies that I've that I've worked. So I'm working flat to, to try and make, bring that out as well. But um, yeah, just reach out to me uh, via the website, be the best place, lisatarmaty.com. Brilliant. Lisa, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Um, I could continue this conversation for a few more hours quite easily. And, um, you know, I'm really looking forward to being on Pushing the Limits podcast later. Uh, to learn around your upbringing and how sport and working hard was just such a, an integral part of your formative years and that drive you had to just go out and experience the world and take things on and overcome adversity and use adversity as an opportunity to learn more, do something different, be creative and, and solve a problem or help someone out. You have, for someone who has been in a world which is all about yourself. You have so much care there for other people and empathy and hope to really help other people and make a difference in their lives. What you've done with your mother is just amazing and has sent shivers down my spine and pretty much brought me to tears during this interview. And I love that passion and that real devotion you have for your mum. And I'm just, I can't wait to see her again. I remember her beautiful smile in the jewelry store and I look forward to seeing her now, you know, being back on track and making a difference and standing up on stage and speaking in front of the bright lights. Uh, it just brings a massive smile to my face, as I'm sure you can see right now. Um, thank you for some amazing uh, take-homes and some amazing ideas and just giving hope to everyone out there. You know, for some of you, you may have felt that wow, Lisa's achieved so much and this is beyond me. Well, no, it's not. And it's just taking those small steps one at a time and just taking that real belief in yourself to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to believe the positive voice in my head and not the one that's trying to distract me because 80% of all stories that ruminate in our head will never, ever come true. So let's focus on the 20% and really make the most of those opportunities. So thank you once again. You're you've gem. been absolutely gold and I love the work and the passion that you bring to your job too and, and the, the, the people that you're helping and this is, you know, it must be something in the Taranaki uh, food that we ate back in, back in the day because, uh, you know, you, you're, you're having a massive impact in the world is, and, and, you know, we try in all our own little ways to, to impact the world in a positive way and you're definitely doing that and I really was honoured to be on your show, Craig, so thanks very much for having me. On today's Active CEO Performance Tip, we're talking about own the choices you make. The world is constantly challenging us through disruption, competing priorities, and competition for our attention. Therefore, we must take control of our own story and influence. You have to own your own life and realize that life is not a dress rehearsal. How much of your life do you really own and take full responsibility for? Remember, you are the sum total of your decisions. You own the choices that you make. Thank you for listening to a remarkable conversation on leadership and tenacity with Lisa Tomati on episode 92, Relentless Leadership in Life on the Active CEO podcast. Are you being the calm influence during times of uncertainty, stress, and crisis? Are you the role model of behavior as a key influencer in your company, team, community, and most importantly, family? Your behavior, emotions, and nonverbal communication is contagious, and it will have an impact on the people in your proximity. It's important that you focus on bringing positivity, optimism, belief, hope, and a sense of calm to the situation. Three ways that you can be the calming influence are, number one, speak in a calm and controlled voice. Number two, make decisions based on fact, not fear. Number three, 
constantly communicate and engage with your staff, your stakeholders, clients, family, and people. If you'd like to learn some tools and skills to have a calming influence on your people, then please contact me for a complimentary 30-minute coaching session at craig at nrg2perform.com or click on the contact page of the www.nrg2perform.com website. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.